today on Semi-Intellectual Musings. We celebrate banned books and thank some good friends at the show. From Jonathan Swift to Punch Magazine and from Warhol to Banksy, we try not to fall too deep down the rabbit hole of satire and irony as we sift through the parody that is everyday life. Then we travel to South Park just to dip our toes into Stark's Pond and finish up with a whole lot of honest opinions. See, Matt, we don't always have to agree. This is the art of satire. confines of a pre-air conditioned uh, formal, formerly like the hottest room in the, <laughs> the house here. So. Oh, it's not hot right now. No, it's, uh, it's real chilly. pleasant. Yeah, yeah I it's nice. for hours in here. Absolutely. Uh, it was like, it had to have been at least 47 outside today. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Like, I made a quick stop um, to grab like a Coke and a chocolate bar because I was starving on the way up here. Yeah. And I ran from my car into the grocery store, from the grocery store into my car. Like, I was just like, oh my goodness, this uh, is but insane. But that sin was delicious. Yeah, that changed our life. Uh, so uh, if you're new here, welcome. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. Uh, if you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back. Uh, this show is a mix of social science, humanities, and arts, and we explore topics from different perspectives than, say, a true crime podcast, uh, or a podcast that focuses exclusively on literature or economics. Uh, kind of light chocolates. You never really know what you're going to get until you bite into one. That's our show. Uh, so give us a try. You might not enjoy all of our episodes, but I'm sure that there's bound to be something in that box, in that feed uh, that interests you from books to movies to sports and music. Uh, you're human. So you're a social being and uh, we have that in common. So, you know, uh, that's a good start. Uh, and uh, what we do know is that uh, we offer you our honest researched opinions. And if we don't know enough, we'll bring someone on to help us out. The second thing that you know before biting into this chocolate is that notebooks are always optional. Uh, we aren't sages on stages pretending to know absolutely everything about a topic. Ooh, I actually like that one, Phil. That was a good one, man. <laughs> uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, we research, we think, we talk. And in that process, we hope at some point together, we all say, huh. I never thought of it that way before. Oh, you just completed my <laughs> Look sentence. Look at that, eh? <laughs> uh, now, I've been using the word no quite a bit here, Matt. Uh, it was semi-intentional. Uh, as you know, I don't know everything, and I so- certainly don't pretend to know everything. Uh, I think we both kind of have that in common. Uh, so this week, because I don't know everything, I reached out, uh, and I have to give a big shout out to Skip from the Skip and Josh podcast uh, for helping me out on some technical stuff. Cool. Hi, Skip and Josh. Um, hi. Uh, <laughs> I always do that, man. Uh, the nitty gritty behind the scenes stuff that goes into making a podcast, the stuff that you as listeners don't hear or see, uh, that's uh, that like, it can be a time suck. Like it really can, uh, just, you just waste your time trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, no, I got a text message from Phil this week. Like, dude, do not go on to the Gmail account. I got a conversation with Skip and Josh. It's all technical. Just stay off of yeah, it. Yeah. Just stay off. Yeah. Of it. I was like, okay, fair. That's not my world. Um, so it's annoying and really frustrating sometimes. Uh, so anyway, um, it's really great that there's like a co- like a collective feeling with indie podcasts. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it really helps uh, that Skip and Josh are just really great guys. And like, you know, they're in Toronto and Montreal. So we kind of have that Canadian connection. Yeah, it's um, the golden triangle. 
Yeah. And <laughs> Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal. No one's ever called it that. <laughs> so, you know, we like their show and they support us on social media and yada, yada, yada. End of the day, uh, Skip helped me. And I think we're going to exchange more ideas uh, as time goes on. Uh, so I'll be talking to him a bit more this coming week, uh, trying to figure some stuff out uh, technical for our show. Cool. That's um, exciting. And it is their one year podcast anniversary. Oh, coming happy podcast anniversary! So, uh, if there is a fan party, this is the official kind of shout out now. Uh, <laughs> if there's a fan party, um, we'd love to attend. Yeah, you got two uh, two very thirsty gay podcasters that will be happy to show up. Now, of course, it's Canada, so oh, yeah, uh, yeah. collectively, there's going to be lots of driving, many hours of driving between us to <laughs> yeah, try totally. to get us all together to one spot. But regardless, if there's a fan party. Uh, I think we'd be there probably with some beer. Yeah, and bells on. Maybe bells, maybe some swag. Yeah, too. And uh, me and Phil will get ourselves a flea bag motel, and we'll uh, we'll turn turn it into an episode somehow. I don't, I don't, I'm not staying in like a flea infested motel with you. <laughs> don't worry, you got a pest specialist here. Oh, That's for a future episode. Yeah, that is okay. Uh, okay, so gearing up for an exciting week here at the show. Uh, it is Band Books Week that runs from September 30th uh, all the way to October 2nd. Uh, no, sorry, September 25th, uh, all the way to October 2nd. Uh, and then on September 30th is International Podcasting Day. Uh, it's also the last week of the month, which means that we'll be releasing a bonus episode. We have uh, now a few patio sessions in the queue ready to be released. And uh, we have a new promo uh, that will be aired on a few other podcasts. So it's a, you know, it, it's entirely possible that each day of this week, there'll be new content from us Ooh, that's very exciting is yeah. that how we're celebrating skip and josh's pod anniversary <laughs> and uh, international podcasting day oh look at us go uh so i think uh to kick it off today uh we'll be talking about satire and i think it's a good way to start band book week as many satirical works have been banned for a variety of reasons uh matt for our listeners because i know what's coming but for them uh give us 10 15 seconds uh what are we doing today Okay, so this is going to be our most humanities and sort of arts-focused episode. We're going to go yeah. deep dive into satire, parody, and uh, Phil's got some good stuff on irony, which I'm really excited to get into. We're going to spend the first portion of the podcast digging into a number of different examples and kind of hitting on genres and mediums of satire, pod, uh, parody, and irony. And then for the last part of the show, we're going to talk about one of probably my favorite show. And that's South Park. So I'm really, I got way too many notes for that. So we're going to try to keep it tight. Folks. Yeah, we're going to try to keep it tight. Uh, speaking of humanities and arts, I have a promo from uh, Jim Goodluck uh, for his podcast, Forgotten News Podcast. So let's have a listen to that promo now. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Annabelle. Together, we bring you the Forgotten News Podcast. We tell true stories from long ago. Stories from before you were born. Stories that made headlines for a week or a month, then vanished just as suddenly. We look for these long lost stories, then brush off the dust and share them with you, as fresh as the day they were first told. One thing we definitely promise you, the stories you will hear will always be a surprise and it will be a true story. It might be a crime story. It might be a strange or spooky story. It might be a funny story. <laughs> if you are someone 
who might like to hear lost stories like these, then you should definitely listen to the Forgotten News Podcast. The Forgotten News Podcast is available on iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts, as well as Google Play, Podbay, Player FM, and nearly every app for listening to podcasts. I don't know what else to say, except be sure to listen to the Forgotten News Podcast. So uh, Jim reads about old newspaper stories. It's fun. It's informative. It's really well researched. Uh, He takes pride in his work, and it really shows the level of detail that he puts in to each episode. Uh, And also, Jim has a fantastic presence on Facebook. Uh, He is really an active member of a lot of those podcasting groups that we're a part of. Uh, He's always helping folks with their questions. So anyway, if you get the chance to say hi to him, I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Uh, we have a second promo, and this time, uh, this is interesting because it's a podcast that's not released yet. So, um, promo for Our Strange Skies. It was Paul Hellier, the former Canadian Minister of Defense, that said, UFOs are as real as airplanes flying overhead. And here at the Our Strange Skies podcast, we're going to take that seriously. Starting in January, we'll be looking into UFO events, incidents, and myths that make up our American identity, from the pre-Roswell era to the post-Roswell era. We'll be covering some of the lesser-known incidents, like the Aztec UFO crash of 1948, John Everill's colonial UFO encounter, and Robert Richardson's 1967 brush with the Men in Black. We'll also be covering some of the more well-known incidents, like the Roswell crash, and doing in-depth profiles on people like J. Allen Hynek, Sergeant Clifford Stone, and many more. Look out for the Our Strange Skies podcast in January. In the meantime, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Grey We Trust. So it's a new show. Uh, really looking forward to the first episode. But for now, you can follow them on Twitter at your UFO guy. That's Y-E-R-U-F-O-G-U-Y. And that's Rob Christoffensen. Uh, he's really supported us, supported us on Twitter uh, he has a fabulous account as well. He's re- always posting stuff, uh, really funny. So check them out and, uh, be sure to subscribe when it comes out to our strange skies podcast. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this episode, Phil. Um, I'm going to really try to contain myself on my South Park geekdom, but, uh, yeah, like we're going to South Park geekdom. Yeah. It's, it's really uh, true blue. So uh, why don't you tell the fine folks how they can reach us? If you have questions, concerns, comments, or considerations, uh, here's how you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. We're on Facebook at the SimPod. You can always send Matt or myself an email at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Our website with the archives to the show is thesim.podbean.com. We're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, Player FM, iVox, Overcast, Podbean, Beyond Pod, <laughs> like pretty much any podcatcher. That you want to use, you can find us. We're on the internet. We're on the internet. Uh, make sure to subscribe to get all the latest episodes, and especially this coming week uh, for some patio sessions that will be released on our feed. And uh, leave us a review on our Facebook page at The Simpod uh, on Facebook. Uh, you know, we already have a couple on there. They say we're fantastic. We'd, we'd like, you know, each day, we'd like if one person could leave us a little message about how fantastic we yeah, were. A little shot in the arm. It would make us uh, make us feel quite nice. <laughs> So why don't you come on down to South Park and meet some friends of mine? Uh, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey, hey. 
This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, and today we're talking satire and irony. Um, but first, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the origin of the word satire. Uh, it comes uh, either from the French word uh, or from the Latin. Uh, now, it could come from satire or the Fr- uh, from the French or the Latin word satire a uh, or satire a. Uh. Uh, consensus is that the English use of satire does not come from the Greek satire, which mm. with a Y, as in the Greek dramas. However, as we'll see, how satire is performed has been informed by the Greek satirical way. Uh, Etymologically, uh, the Middle French satire is a poem form in which prevailing immorality or foolishness is ridiculed or denounced. Now, the dictionary has a definition of satire as a poem or in later use a novel, film, or other works of art which uses humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to express and criticize prevailing immorality or foolishness, especially as a form of social or political commentary. Now it's also an extended use in other art forms. So you can see why right away we want to focus in on on this kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, A satirical utterance, a speech or saying which ridicules and criticizes a person, thing, or quality and it is a type of derisive humor or irony that is typical of a satire, uh, that is typical of satire, can include mocking wit, sarcasm, especially as employed against something perceived as foolish or immoral. And finally, a satire can be a thing or circumstance which exposes the faults or absurdities of something or someone. I think um, just for the folks, uh, he mentioned foolishness or immoral a number of times. That's uh, two terms to key in on for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so we can approach satire as a form of expression. Uh, I think 
this is one of several ways that we could do so. Uh, we could also say that it is a form of expression in response to something, uh, so that in this way, it is by definition a social form of expression that requires A, a prompt, B, a narrative, often a rhetorical response, and then C, an audience for its consumption. Otherwise, I think it's just a failed critique. Oh, that's, that's interesting, man. That, is that your own? Like, yeah, I think, yeah, really yeah. Cool. those yeah, are the three things I think that make, make it I'm up. just going to put a star by that and I'm going to have to reread that. Okay, Go we'll, on. okay good. <laughs> uh, Mustafa Hedaya writes, as a form of expression which uses humor to call into question dominant paradigms in society, the idea of satire is indelibly linked to a wide-ranging social consciousness, a marginal stance that appeals widely for its incisive humor, its ability to speak truth to power. Now, the vulgarity of 16th century performers from the Comedia del Arte or a mercurial editor of Punch magazine find commonality through satire, even though the products or the rhetorical devices are quite different. Now, some of the oldest texts found in the world of literature are satires, from Aesop's Fables to the Thousand and One Nights, for example, or the Greek dramas uh, were also satirical, and so too were many of the earliest poems. So literature and arts, as we know it, have been immensely influenced and shaped by satire, which brings us to the question of the economic foundations of arts, what we could say the political economy of arts. Has satire been devalued as a popular art form? If it was more prominent in terms of quantity in the past, what has happened to satire in our current times? John Stewart and his Egyptian copycat Basim Yusuf could be testament to the changing nature of the practice of satire. While both have enjoyed large audiences, their products probably will not stand the test of time in the same way Jonathan, Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal has. Ooh, oh, okay, I'm going to hold my debate for later. Go okay, on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. go, go. Uh, so <laughs> in this way, commentators have often inferred that new media, like social media or YouTube, online zines, 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 etc. Yeah, zines, yeah. Uh, have increased the circulation of satirical works. However, the internet's supposed influence in the proliferation of satire has only captured the imagination of those who yearn for a revival of the art form. When looking at the internet, it is probably more a question of quality than quantity. Satire's heyday has not been a result of the type of memes that litter social media or of a remix culture that has spawned new forms of music, visual arts, and poems. Which brings me to my last point for now. Is a satire intentional or can it be an unintentional result of a joke or a lampoon gone bad. Think of satirical memes that have been created based on something that happened that was not satirical at all. So then, who performs satire is as important as who can perform satires. Who makes a situation into a satire or is able to convert something into a satire matters. I cannot create a satire that will catch on. I do not have an audience to do so, even though I'm a podcast host it would never it would never go anywhere so i think an audience for a satire is important mm. in michel foucault's terms it's a question of who can speak the truth in the process of truth telling if we agree that satire has a component of truth something at least partially real can we then say that it is a form of truth telling and if so has modern satire become a deformation of the process of truth telling so if we think of swift for example his works uh, are not at all the same as Stewart's, but he probably doesn't want it to be. Matt, with that in mind, uh, let's look at some definitions that we can later try to undo. Uh, 
as we try to make sense of this mess that I've kind of set us up for. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so to start, what's the difference between satire, parody, lampoon, caricature, cartoon, all that stuff? Okay, that was great, Phil, um, and a lot to unpack there. So I focused on satire and parody, um, and I was happy to see you bringing up irony later. So yeah. I uh, went on the Google machine and found um, some pretty um, pretty elegant and well, like pretty straightforward quotes here from uh, the website Quora. And uh, the publisher's name, I suppose, is Varsha Eluri, um, E-L-U-R-I. And uh, she um, says that parody is uh, sometimes referred to as spoof. It's essentially an imitative work. It uses a skeleton of an original work and adds to it its own comedic elements that strive towards exaggerating the flaws of the original work or trivializing it, or in some cases, both. So this gets exactly to what Phil's yeah. saying about um, poking fun at the immorality of social life in some capacity. Um, so on the other hand, satire um, uses irony, right? And in some cases, exaggeration to expose vices and shortcomings of an entity. So exaggeration is key, key and so is irony. Be it an individual or a complex and interdependent system, such as our society, which is how we're going to be using it today. Mm -hmm. um, humor might be part of it, and this is something I actually disagree but the end result is almost never funny. It is oh. used to elicit thinking and realization in the audience. Interesting. Yeah, and I immediately disagreed with that, but then I thought for about it for a second. Yeah. And often, for example, when I watch a South Park episode, I laugh throughout, but afterwards you're like, oh man, we're, we're screwed. We're fucked. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I think she, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I think she made a really good point there. Um, and then she also had, I just included it, a farce is what she calls it, F-A-R-C-E. Um, is a comedy that uses highly exaggerated situations to entertain its audience. These situations are, are more often than not exaggerated to an extent that ultimately re renders them improbable. Right, so that's the kind of like slapstick stuff that, uh, you know... Yeah, really, and I didn't really think happen. of this to put in the notes, but I, I think of Mr. Bean right now, actually. Mr. Bean, yeah. um, cars, planes, and trains. Is oh, that planes, trains, and automobiles? Yeah, that's it. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, maybe that's kind, it's of, something that's kind of a farce, a farce school movie. It is, it is. But then there's like, and this is what's interesting about these definitions and the definitions Phil offered is that they're they're all kind of blurry. And that's, I think, what we're going to do in this episode is really dig into these definitions through the examples that we put forward and uh, to show how, yeah, kind of blurry things are. Okay, Matt, uh, you know, these kind of textbook uh, definitions are all good and all, uh, but what's your take on it? Yeah, and this is classic academics for you. Every academic has their own definition upon a definition. Well, there's two of us and there's three opinions right now. So. Yeah, okay, let's dig into this. So um, for me, satire is overtly political in its messaging. Okay. And I think the messaging here is key. I have a quote later from McEwen that gets at that. Um, whereas parody, the political and social commentary, I think is implied in the medium and in the delivery of the comedy itself. So I agree um, with the Quora <laughs> publisher that humor is central, but I think humor is central in both of them. Um, and I also think parody is much more mimicry based. So you see a lot more impressions in parody. Um, and whereas satire can have mimicry, but is not a key feature, you know, so it's an element. So for example, in South Park, anyone who's seen the show knows the famous disclaimer at the beginning of the ep every episode. Right, it's yeah. changed slightly. For all those South Park nerds out there, I realize that it's changed slightly in the early episodes or the early seasons, but here we go. This is the uh, disclaimer that appears. All characters and events in this show, even those based on real people, are entirely fictional. All celebrity voices are impersonated poorly. 
The pro following program has coarse language and due to its content should not be viewed for anyone. Should not be viewed by anyone. Damn. Um, so even South Park puts this disclaimer in there, but the disclaimer is a satirical parody. Right. Uh, of disclaimers. And this is how we get into these definitions. Like, is that a, being a, like a parody of a disclaimer or is it like satirizing a disclaimer? Like, right. Or is it just their kind of way of saying, you know, stop putting disclaimers on shit? Yeah. And they, when they do have a celebrity on, the impersonations are so over the top yeah. that, um, but that right there is a par is a parody because it's um, playing up some sort of perceived flaw in these characters, these celebrities' uh, personalities or behaviors or things they've done. But speaking of uh, celebrity parodies, there's that other kind of category, which is impersonations. Yeah, for sure. And I think just like parody propelling satire, impersonations, when it's done correctly. Um, can be very effective. And I'm not talking just about the quality of the impersonator, but also this sort of playing up of the flaws of the um, person they're impersonating. I've heard, oh God, I'm saying impersonator so many times, but I've heard impersonators say that that is how they pull off a good impersonation is by focusing on a few little character flaws and then playing those up almost. And make you cry. So I have come up. So somebody who I think epitomizes pure parody and not satire is Andre-Philippe Gagnon. And I picked him because I know that Phil knows exactly who this is. So do you know who Andre-Philippe Gagnon is? <laughs> yeah, and I know this song. Uh, <gasps> oh, thank you, Phil. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. Yeah, uh, I love Andre-Philippe Gagnon. Impersonations. You know, he's got it down. Yeah, he's got it down, and he was so huge. Uh, one of the early stars of Just for Laughs. Um, big, big deal in Canada. If I wasn't attached to microphones and headphones, I'd get up and dance. That's the way So the next thing I wanted to play for you, it kind of jumped right out of my podcatcher. I'm not going to give it much of an intro other than to mention the guy's name. Anthony Adamanuk, it's A-T-A-M-A-N-U-I-K, and I think you guys are all going to really enjoy this. My name is Donald Trump. I am 71 years old. I live in the White House in Mar-a-Lago in Bedminster and in Trump Tower in the penthouse. Paul Manafort has the 43rd floor. Guido Lombardi is on the 62nd and 63rd floors. I don't believe in taking care of myself because I don't need to. I mean, I just grab that pussy. I eat McDonald's, KFC, and have zero exercise routine. In the morning, if my face is a little puffy, I'll put on a frozen Trump steak while tweeting. I have 38 million followers now. That includes the sex bots, white supremacists, and a lot of Macedonians. Great people. They love Trump. After I remove the Trump steak, I use a half a container of Vaseline mixed with a little gasoline. 
In the shower, I use an Old Spice gel, Steel Courage. Then I apply a bright orange facial mask, which I leave on for 10 minutes while I prepare the rest of my routine. I always use a primer coat with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look like Carly Fiorina. Then the first coat of spray bronzer, then Melania's anti-aging eye balm, followed by a final coat of orange number seven. And don't forget the anti-baldness medication. That's what makes me nice and crazy. There is an idea of a Donald J. Trump, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only a collection of emotional states assembled into the illusion of a human being. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my small hand and feel clammy flesh gripping you, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably not comparable, I simply... I'm not there. Okay, man. Did you like that? That was... I got goosebumps still. It's chilling, man. It's so chilling. I am simply not there. Uh, Yeah, that was borderline scary. Yeah, when I listened to that, I'm like, this is perfect. Uh, I do have to say again, thank you uh, to the Intercepted podcast oh yes the intercepted uh, yes that that's where that came from phenomenal yeah uh, right there yeah and i'm pretty sure uh evan former guest uh yeah, recommended the intercepted yeah, he and he was bang on about that i love that show um so <laughs> i got a marshall McLuhan quote um just a short one the medium is the message and for me that um donald trump impression was a perfect example of this because the delivery was just so chilling like i'm still the lines are ringing in my head so yeah. I think a very important um, aspect of effective satire, parody, and irony is um, a proper delivery message and Mm. a proper median. And I would also argue just the last point on the structure and the mechanics of satire, parody, and irony. I'd also argue that the median facilitates the political, social, and cultural messaging in um, those three forms of art. Mm, yeah. um, books that um, I just wanted to mention, books that are satirical, The Dollop, my, our favorite podcast, um, released a book of uh, some of their best stories. And also, I would argue that that um, the pickup artist book, The Game, is um, a form of unintentional, I guess, parody. Like, he wasn't intending it to be ridiculous, but it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, and I do have to... Uh, so I'm going to do this thing where I call out worms of stuff that I don't like. And I think the game is, uh, oh, insanely yeah. sexist, misogynist. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for any of its unintentional satirical qualities, it is a piece of garbage. Yeah. It's, it's awful. I don't think you're going out there on a limb no, again, okay. Phil. <laughs> I didn't think I was, uh, but, uh, to continue on with some examples of, uh, parody, uh, what do you have for us, Matt? Okay. So I got a ton of examples about parody, satire, and irony. Um, I started, uh, it's kind of like a short chronological thing, but uh, I think some of great early examples of political satire are the political cartoons. Um, they really yeah. focus on political shortcomings and scandals. Um, and there's a great connection to Jonathan Swift and feeding babies to rich folks. I'll leave yeah. that as a little cliffhanger because yeah. I know Phil's got some stuff on that. Um, but I think um, there's a lot of other political cartoons that pick up his imagery. And I would like to return to that as well when we talk about a very famous magazine. Um, 
a lot of this early political satire, I would say, is based on, it's kind of a racial satire. They focus on differences um, based on the evolutionary paradigms that were popular at the time. And I'm talking about the early all the way through to the early 19, early 1800s, all the way through the early 1900s. So The these, Darwin. Yeah, the Darwin, the eugenics, that sort of stuff. And we mentioned it on a previous show. Um, but uh, when it comes to the differences, the differences usually boil down to physical, mental, behavioral, and uh, questions about their morality. So judgments about um, these racial others' morality. Yeah, so I think those are uh, some good elements of the early stuff. Uh, what do you got for the 20th century? Okay, so this is where I really <laughs> kept it short. Yeah. Um, so I'll just sort of rattle around off a couple of these shows. We'll talk about those, and then I got a few more. Um, so kind of my second favorite show, I think, one of my favorite classic shows is All in the Family. Yeah. And to me, that's a, uh, a 70s show that satirizes um, domestic life and also generational divides. Um, and it always focused around political ideologies coming into conflict around the generations within a household. Um, famous characters, but we'll just sort of leave it at that. And then related, I guess, to that would be That 70s Show. That 70s Show. Yeah, are you yeah. A fan? were you a fan of that uh, show? I watched That 70s Show. Yeah, I did too. It, it yeah. was pretty good. Uh, yeah. But again, it kind of picked up on the sat- uh, satirization of home life. Okay, so is it a parody um, or sat- satire? Well, this is what I want well, to Well, I think it you. was a parody of what, um, you know, a stone smoker, like a stone teenager in the 70s was. Mm. But I think it was a satire, like a, it was a satire of family in and, general. Like it extended beyond the 70s, right? Like it, yeah. it took place in the 70s and it made fun of some of the things that were happening yeah. there. That was the parody part. But like the way in which it satired family yeah, like, like the political messaging yeah, exactly. like transcended actually that decade, I guess is what you're you, saying. You, there you go. And um, I think it's also one of these classics examples, that 70s show, that has a lot of parody in it as well. Because like the look of it, the feel of it, it's not like this is what the 70s look like. But it's like these are all the quirky elements of the 70s and yeah. then they get played up like yeah. crazy. People like when they're sitting around the round day. table passing around the joint. Like yeah. That's just the parody of how you consume drugs, right? Like, you know. Exactly. And then... So All in the Family, therefore, like filmed in the 70s, that'll give you a real image of this is what the 70s actually looked like. And these were the political debates that were going on at the time. And I mentioned that because Norman Lear uh, was uh, responsible for All in the Family and a number of other shows like The Jeffersons. Um, And he always went after these political issues. He was very edgy. I highly recommend checking out all his shows. And very influential. Very influential, yeah. Um, so another interesting example I have that's more from our time is American Psycho. Yeah. And to me, American Psycho is a like, there's no comedy in it other than, I don't know, I like, what would you say? Is there a comedy? It's not is, comedic. It's not comedic, but is it's it? It's not a parody. Uh, I think it's a satire. Are there in, humorous in parts? It, no. I, well, maybe it's humorous, but then after you don't laugh. Yeah, and that's the classic hallmark of a satire, yeah. right? Where it's like humor is not the central uh, por- uh, part of it, but um, definitely when you finish American Psycho, you're like, ugh. Well, that parody that we heard, uh, or impersonation parody of Trump from The Intercepted, um, you know, is a take on, I, I believe, how the film starts. That's right? right. Yeah. Thanks for making that connection, Phil. That's why, when that's the reason we played it. Yeah. That, and that's why this is here. Um, so I'll just rattle these uh, three, um, kind of three of my favorites. Um, In Living Color, to me, is much more parody. There is less of the political messaging, but the social and cultural commentary in In Living Color 
was very much there. So it was all about the 90s and the Generation X or the slacker generation. So In Living Color was really the show for the Gen Xers. And that's where I think the social and cultural critique comes in. Um, Wag the Dog is my favorite political uh, movie. It's a classic political satire. It's all about manufacturing a war. I highly recommend checking it out. And then also Network is my favorite movie about the media uh, writ large. It was actually made in the 70s, um, really? but it, um, predicted, uh, it predicted the rise of cable news, essentially, 24-hour news. It's an amazingly prophetic um, uh, piece of art, and that's why I included that there. Uh, so m- moving away from the 20th century, Matt, I think uh, 9-11 uh, kind of makes uh, satire or, you know, satire around in post 9-11 kind of fumbles and wobbles and takes some interesting kind of turns. Mm. Uh, I would like to pick up on one kind of element of that. Uh, and it's something that we talked about in our conspiracies episode. And that that was the idea that uh, the internet the internet kind of went dark after 9-11. Uh, the idea that it got uh, much more vulgar. Uh, it got much more dark as in uh, like emo kind of dark, right? Like mm. uh, we're all going to die, uh, all that kind of stuff. But then mm. also much more personal. Ah, interesting. Uh, so, like, a lot of personal attacks. Think of Reddit yeah. uh, and that kind of stuff. And, like, celebrities and public figures, they were, like, fair game to have personal attacks on them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, I think the ad hominem mm. uh, form of satire mm. uh, really took hold. Um, you know, later I'm going to talk about uh, uh, different forms uh, of rhetoric. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, post-9-11 saw the emergence or the re-emergence of kind of older forms of rhetoric uh, uh, that attack people, basically. And for me, like, I'm really interested in emotions, like on a kind of an academic level. And for me, um, the satire and the darkness, uh, on one element, I think it was interesting you mentioned that people muddled and found their way. I think a lot of comedians after 9-11 had to reassess what jokes a were A little okay. bit, yeah, yeah. Um, but we're talking about non-professional comedians who are voicing their things on the internet. And another element is, I think, they were voicing that anger out there as a almost a vent because a lot of people were angry and scared after 9-11. And I think it took the form of just awfulness on the internet. So uh, in that vein, uh, we have uh, an example mm-hmm. of, of, I think, post-9-11 comedic satire. And that is found in Jon Stewart. Uh, so can you set this up for us, Matt? Yeah, this is uh, Jon Stewart's famous appearance on the show Crossfire with uh, Tucker Carlson and that other guy. And it's uh, great because you can tell that the host brought him on because they thought he was going to be funny, but he took this super serious um, um, stance. And there's this one famous line, I'm not sure it's going to be in this clip, but he's like, uh, Tucker's like, oh, I thought this was going to be funny. He's like, I have young children. There's nothing funny about this. I take this very seriously. And people were just scream cheering in the audience. All right, well, uh, let's take a listen. I think oftentimes the person that knows they can't win is allowed to speak the most freely and uh, uh, because otherwise shows with titles such as Crossfire, Crossfire. or Hardball or I'm going to kick your ass or uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll jump on it. it, it in, in many ways, it's funny, you know, and I, and I, I made a special effort to come on the show today because I have uh, privately amongst my friends and also in occasional newspapers and television shows <laughs> mentioned uh, this show oh, this as being uh, uh, bad. 
and, and, and I wanted to, I felt that that wasn't thing. fair, and I should come here and, and tell you that I don't, it's not so much that it's bad as it's hurting America. <laughs> so I, I wanted to come here today let me, and say, wait, wait, no, I just, no, let me, here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. And like, do you remember seeing this America. Okay, now? And, and yeah, come work yeah, for us because we, as the people. How do you pay? The people, not, not well. Better than CNN, I'm sure. But you can sleep at night. Uh, See, the, the, the thing is, yeah, we need your, your help. You're, right now, you're helping the politicians and the, 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 the corporations, and we're left out Wait, there to mow our lawns. You just lawns. said we're too rough on them when they make mistakes. No, 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 you're not too rough on them. You're part of their strategies. Your partisan, um, what do you call it, hacks. <laughs> Wait, like, let me tell you something valuable partisan that I think hacks, we do yeah. that I'd like to see you something do. Something valuable? You yeah, no. Well, yeah. It's, it's I nice would like when, to, I would when like politicians, when, and I'll tell you, when politicians come on, yeah. it's nice to get them to try and answer the question. And mm -hmm. in order to do that, we try and ask them pointed questions. I want to contrast our questions with some questions you asked John no, Kerry. If, if, you want to, if you want to compare your show to a comedy show, you're more than no, no, welcome to. No, no, here's, no, no, here's the point. Yeah, if, that's if, that's have, if that's your goal, no, it's not. I would name for here's, us, I'd aim for Here's Seinfeld. the problem. That's Kerry a very good show. Kerry won't come mm -hmm. on this show. He will come on your show. Let me suggest right. why he wants to. Well, we have some. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, yeah, so I'm gonna, I think we got cut the clip here. And so they go back and forth. They banter on the show. But I think John... He does a great job of mixing humor in there in a very organic way. Because remember, he's a professional comedian before the Daily yeah. Show, so and, he and, knows how and to his burn show a guy. Is on the comedy. Yeah, network, it's so like he has that card. To it's play, like he's right? dealing with two hecklers there. The other guy just shut up. It was all Tucker, right? The other guy was right. smart enough to just keep his mouth yeah. shut. Um, so I got another clip here that we're uh, going to play. It's Sean Spicer at the Emmys, and I really wanted to include this because it just happened. Just happened, and it shows Hollywood's complicity in the Trump administration, and that's exactly what. Um, John Stewart was getting at with CNN. Here we see it on the Emmys. Remind you, um, remember it was co-hosted by um, Colbert. Colbert, yeah. So. Of course, what really matters to Donald Trump is ratings. You gotta have the big numbers. And I certainly hope we achieve that tonight. Unfortunately, at this point, we have no way of knowing how big our audience About is. About the crowd, right? Yeah. I mean, is there yeah, anyone exactly. who could say how big the audience is? Sean, do you know? Listen to the sound. So he's wheeling out his podium. Listen to the crowd, though. This will be the largest audience I don't hear to witness an Emmys, period. Both in person and around the world. Wow, that really soothes my fragile ego. A weak I can understand joke. why you'd want one of these guys around. Melissa McCarthy, everybody, give it up. That's funny. That's funny. That was pretty funny. Yeah, and I think uh, the the camera panned to her in yeah. the audience. Yeah, uh, and it was interesting. Um, in the clip, you can see the reaction of all the various celebrities, and there was genuine surprise. So I will um, spare them the judgment of not like immediately booing that guy because I, I think everyone was just like shocked that he was there. Um, yeah. But they had an opportunity. When he started talking, I would have started booing personally. And, and I think some people did boo. I think uh, after the fact, there were many uh, disgruntled uh, people with the fact that he had uh, gone on the show. What I really wanted to dig into, which would be really interesting to um, break apart this, uh, these definitions of satire and parody, is um, is Saturday Night Live satire or parody? And then I was going to ask you a follow-up. What about Monty Python? So can we talk about Saturday Night Live and Monty Python? 
my opinion is Saturday Night Live is a mix of the two. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. I think it does a good job at, um, you know, the cold open monologues are usually satirical. Yeah, they're about current events usually. Uh, yeah. They do do they do mix uh, parody with some really like uh, ironic uh, sort of stuff. Yeah, there's um, usually elements across um, everyday life as well. They got like music and uh, they all their sketches are about everyday life as well. Yeah, so I think they do a good job at at blending yeah. the satirical side that is uh, a little bit more political uh, and a little bit more geared towards showing the absurdity and also, um, you know, rendering celebrity figures ironic in that, mm. in that sort of sense. Yeah, for sure. And the uh, weekend update, I think is probably the most satirical and it's always been an element. Um, but also within some of the sketches that are the, the most like almost farcical, right? They're just outlandish. Like I'm thinking of, uh, uh, Belushi's uh, samurai sketch. Right. Um, yeah. That's sort of about like race relations in America and the fact that kung fu movies were really popular and it was a very stereotypical view of Asians. So they're also doing something a little political there, but it's like totally over the top. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So what about Monty uh, Python? Monty Python. Yeah. Again, it's kind of a good mix of the two. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, when I think Monty Python, I think uh, of the Holy Grail. Right. Right. Um, so I think of kind of what's going on in that movie. Yeah. Um, I think it parodies. Um, so first of all, Christianity. And right. I think it satirizes the practices of it. Yeah. But I think it also extends to all the different sort of ways that Christianity is propped up. Yeah. Uh, the so the not, life of Brian is like that as well. That's what I keep thinking about. That's the one I'm most familiar with. Yeah. yeah I'm with you. Yeah. So I think I think it does a good job at attacking that. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a very particular kind of humorous way, because mm-hmm. many of their sketches are humorous. Yeah. Uh, but then there's a lot of just dull shit that Money Python does. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not really funny. It just kind of goes on and on. Yeah. But yeah. When you're done watching the skit or the segment, yeah, you come to the realization that that is how life is. Yeah. It just it's kind of boring. But I've never been left with the classic satirical feeling when you're done watching something. It's like as the quote I read earlier. Maybe you're you're left feeling like a little weird about society. Like, they're just a little bit too ridiculous, maybe. So they're maybe, maybe more yeah. on the parody side, yeah. whereas Saturday Night Live is maybe more on the satirical side. Yeah. Um, but both, um, as you say, can totally not be funny. And then sometimes there's some of the funniest things I've ever seen on TV right there. And I would also make, sorry, the point about Monty Python. I feel like the TV show, their show, was more a parody, Whereas um, the movies had more satirical elements. They had more yeah. political, social, and cultural messages in yeah. there. And I'm thinking of Life of Brian here as well. Right, yeah. Because it's more than just about the life of this guy who lived next door to Jesus Christ. It's, yeah, exactly, it's about, yeah. It's about everything, both in the past and contemporary times. So Bring um, out your dad. So we've talked about parody and satire to death. Phil, you, as promised, have some stuff on irony. Let's not make this ironic. <laughs> yeah, I'll try not to. Uh <laughs> I wanted to get in, uh, so move a little bit closer to the arts world, and I wanted to talk about Andy uh, Warhol. Um, now, I think an entire study of Warhol could take uh, an entire podcast. Yeah, uh, for sure. not a, Not an episode, like an entire podcast just about Warhol. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to bring up uh, a couple points. So I think, one, um, Warhol is more irony than satire. Um, okay. And I think, so think of uh, the Campbell Soup uh, kind of famous depiction. So the one where it's just a huge can of soup, 
but then also the other one where it's the uh, dented, broken can with the label peeled off. Okay, so like, are you making the argument then that irony <clears throat> is devoid of like overt like messaging or um, like how? Let's unpack this a little bit. Yeah, so I think okay, so in your mind, I'm famous with the Campbell soup. Yeah, so in your mind, picture the Campbell soup one, right. the the two. Yeah. Uh, and then also uh, picture the famous Coca-Cola one, which is basically um, a depiction of a whole bunch of bottles of Coca-Cola like in a vending machine, and there's one that's falling, uh, and uh, some of the other works that, okay. he, that he's done about Coca-Cola. So picture those two. And the form of irony that I think Warhol takes is that it breaks rules, it incorporates culture, and it creates some sort of ambu- ambiguity. Yeah, ambiguity. Yeah. Uh, with regards to what we're actually looking at. Uh, so his ability to, um, you know, convey new perspectives on things, uh, at the same time relating to mass, so mass ornamentation in that Benjamin kind of sense, right? So it's a mass product. It's something that you see over and over again. Oh, okay. So this is why they call it pop art, right? Because it's well, like this heavily is it, reproduced right? and stuff. And it's, it's meant to be like It's that. pop art yeah. that it's meant to be consumed by the masses. Right. But yeah. what Warhol does is he incorporates something that's already in mass circulation. So he uses uh, that ornamentation. And that's that Walter Benjamin sense of mass ornamentation is that it's something that's already out there and reproduced and reproducible. So a can of tomato soup uh, mm. for example, is the perfect symbolized form of the economy and the oh, mode yeah. of society for that sure. we live in, right? Like you can just go to town on the interpretations. That's why you said there could be an entire podcast series on Warhol and you yeah. can just do each episode exactly. on one image in and of itself because you can just dig it apart. But then what he does is he creates uh, the kind of questioning that's open to interpretation. So what do you mean when you give us this huge can of, of soup? And what does it mean when you show us uh, this can that's now dented, right? And then Warhol would say, what does it mean to you? Well, right, yeah. So he, right. he's kind of like, he, he he invokes the joke yeah. uh, with, with some of it too. Yeah. Nothing's, and, nothing's very serious. Nothing has a definite kind of form or content. And he's probably one of the only artists that like his actual face jumps to mind. When you th- say Andy Warhol, like I know exactly what he looks like. Right. And he's very distinct. Um, and just the way he presents himself to the public is open to interpretation as is his art. Well, okay. Uh, from there, I'm going to present you another, uh, artist that we've never seen his face and that he doesn't present himself. And that's that, uh, figure, uh, Banksy. Banksy. So yep. I think Banksy seems to follow something similar, uh, in regard to Warhol. Uh, his works are styled differently than Warhol's, but I feel Banksy portrays Warhol as kind of a sellout. So when Banksy is taking up the images of Warhol, recreating kind of Warhol's uh, classic iconic stuff. I feel that Banksy is basically saying, Warhol, you're a fucking sellout. Um, Now there's a debate to how much Banksy uh, has been absorbed into mass culture and mass art. Uh, You know, some of his stuff is being preserved. They're taking down portions of walls to save it. He's up in museums and all this crap. Um, So, you know, he would be like furious over that. Yeah. Well, you know, so like, I think there's a question as to if the messages have lost their satirical punch, so to speak, right? Mm. So his original, Banksy's original kind of artwork were extremely satirical against the army, against the occupation in Palestine, for example. Uh, you know, the simple things like the one that has a parking lot where he erases the ING and draws a little girl on a swing set with the word park. Like that's pretty satirical. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. But and, uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. So, I mean, like, 
this is interesting that like, okay, so for maybe for Banksy, because he's become so popular that for him, his intended political message has been converted. But some theme that we always return to in this podcast is it's really the interpretation comes from the interpreter, right? And um, Banksy may have all sorts of political messages that he put into his art, but it really is, in my mind, the consumer of that art that gets to make the interpretations. Yeah, art is those... anything that it is to you. And like, I love South Park, which we're going to be talking about shortly. Um, but um, I find so much more in it than maybe Phil does, right? Because he's not as big a fan as I am. Same thing with Banksy. I love Banksy, right? Not as big a fan as Warhol. But uh, I've found more like political messages in Banksy than anything. So that brings us to the question, Phil. Um, what makes a piece of art satirical? Like, is all art in unintentionally satirical and the sa satirical qualities get imposed upon by the viewer or what do you think about this yeah i think like i think you kind of you, you've kind of summed it up actually it's like uh, you know who decides uh what the message is is subject to interpretation um the other kind of thing that i would add to what you've said already is that it's the unintended consequences of that viewership uh, that are important to look at so the unintended consequence that bits and pieces of walls in London are being cut down and brought into museums is kind of what makes the whole phenomena around Banksy so interesting, right? Yeah, but, totally. But the graffiti artist doesn't think, well, shit, they're going to preserve my stuff? Like, if anything, any graffiti artist goes, well, they're going to spray it off. They're going to wash it off, right? Yeah, that's not, implied in the art of graffiti art, Not, right? Yeah, so... The temporariness. Not they're going to take the chunk of wall restore it and put it into a fucking museum right and i've also heard this is just a secondhand but like when it comes to graffiti artists if something is like either a mural or like banksy which is like a, a painting graffiti painting i'd call it um you wouldn't tag over that but tags are meant to be tagged over and played upon so there's also this playful quality that like once you take it out of its urban space it sort of loses the that other dimension of graffiti yeah, art absolutely well. for sure so I like to return to this uh, question, like who decides what the message is, right? So interpretations is really big for me. For me, I think, as I mentioned, it's relative to who is consuming the art. And also these interpretations change over time. Um, it's also based on why people are interpreting. So what um, biases they bring into the interpretation, and then also their sort of longer standing confirmation biases that are deeply held. And this manifests in a way that people avoid um, satirical and parodies that are going to challenge their um, previously held political beliefs, I think. So one of the powerful things about a good satire, parody, or an irony is just being able to get out to the wider masses. So when it comes to Banksy, my, my view is actually it's better that it becomes popular and more people just see his imagery. Because all you have to do is take one look at a Banksy and know that it's powerful, original, and it's got a lot of right, messages. Right, yeah. Uh, speaking of original messages being powerful, original, uh, let's move into the world of books. Yeah. Here we are again in the world of books. In the world of books. Uh, what, okay. So I'm going to toss it back over to you, Matt. Uh, kind of what would be an example of a satirical or ironic novel for you? So when it comes to books, like it's rare that for me that I, a book will make me laugh out loud. So when humor is missing from, a piece of satire or a piece of parody, um, I think it loses a quality in the messaging, right? So when it comes to books, 
um, we have to almost like not assume that there's going to be humor there oh, as a qualifier of this being satire, this being parody. So some of my favorites um, that uh, we've mentioned, I'm sure, on this a number of times, um, Animal Farm, uh, Fahrenheit 451, and The Clockwork of Orange. I thought those would be good ones to kind of pick apart. Now, what's interesting is those we've also classified as works of social science fiction in the past. Uh, and the crossover between social science fiction and works of satire, um, you know, is quite large. They overlap quite a bit. So as I mentioned, I, I, I think books are not typically not that funny, right? Um, and I think why that is is because they're missing that visual component. I find a lot more theater in place to be funny. And when you're looking at social scientific satire, let's say, um, you're going to find that more within plays, playwrights, things like this. So um, when it comes to Animal Farm, I think um, I try to find the humor in it, but it's just there's no humor there. Right, yeah. So are you saying that it's more a work of social science fiction then because it's not humorous? I think so, yeah. And I think for me, like I'm just so big on like humor and emotions and things like this. Um, I think there needs to be some element. But then, we are mentioning this before, before we recorded, when social science fiction or um, science fiction tries to be humorous, it usually doesn't come across well right. and almost gets in the way of the story. So if if the main element of satire and parody is the political, social, and cultural, then I think books should just try not to be funny and just go with the story because there's more messaging there. The right. medium is a message. So Matt's almost last words is books stop trying to be funny. Stop I'm trying to be funny I might, books. I might have to disagree with you with that, but I do want to move on to a classic work in the satirical genre, and that is Jonathan Swift's 1729, A Modest Proposal for Preventing the children of poor people from being a burden to their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public. Uh, I'm talking, Wait, sorry, that's the title. That is the full title. That's awesome. It usually gets <laughs> cut down to a modest proposal. Uh, it's a juvenile, <laughs> juvenilian satirical essay written and published anonymously by Swift, where he suggests that the impoverished Irish might ease their economic troubles by selling their children as food for wit, for rich gentlemen, and ladies. Okay, I remember this now. Yeah, I totally remember this. This is famous. For so sure. the book essentially mocked heartless attitudes towards the poor, as well as British policy towards Irish in general. And he used uh, certain methods of argumentation throughout the essay, which lampoon the then influential William Petty uh, and the social engineering popular among followers of Francis Bacon. So the essay is widely held to be one of the greatest examples of sustained irony in the history of the English language. Much of its shock value derives from the fact that the first portion of the essay described the plight of starving beggars in Ireland so that the reader is unprepared for the surprise of Swift's solution when he states, a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is, at a year old, a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled. And I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricasse or a ragu. Oh, that is, like, as a new father, that is really fucking tough to hear, man. Right. So you go from, uh, you know, social and economic policy, you know, pages and pages of social and economic uh, policy, uh, like, you know, um, observations, to, well, you know what? Feed your kids. Yeah, and it's like, for one, uh, Swift, I'm pretty sure it was like like English. 
like, mm-hmm. from England itself. So he's um, turning the critical lens um, on his own society and um, how they're treating the Irish. I also think it's very interesting that you said sustained irony. When you have a work of irony like this, one little misstep or crack um, will really set it apart. So um, I think it's a real masterpiece as well. And I'm yeah, glad it's, you it's caref- up. carefully written for sure. And just one last little point. Um, when I mentioned the, the plays and theater, I think the visual component is really key. And then Jonathan Swift, he is a very visual yeah, writer. I remember yeah. that from Gulliver's yeah. Travels yeah. and stuff. I felt like it was in yeah. that world. Which, you know, Gulliver's Travels is another form of uh, satire. Yeah, um, I was surprised to see you bring this up. And as soon as you did, I knew what you were talking about. But I would have assumed that you would have gone with Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, so I like Gull- the curveball. Yeah, but Gulliver's Travels uses a different form of satire. Yeah. And I'm going to get to why I picked this okay, one. Cool. Okay, So there's really two points about bringing up uh, a modest proposal. The first point is the book is a masterpiece in satire, as you just said, Matt. It's influenced many works since. Um, and, um, you know, if one of those books uh, that just has to be mentioned when we talk of satire... And there are many, many, many more that we could talk about. Uh, but okay, so sorry, we you know we're gonna leave them there. Uh, but the second kind of point is that the book is written in a very precise form of rhetoric. So Swift employed paralipsis or apophasis. Nicely done, Phil. Which is uh, a rhetoric device, a rhetorical device, wherein the speaker or writer brings up a subject by either denying it or denying that it should be brought up. So interestingly, the rhetorical device is probably one of Trump's favorites. He uses it all the time. So, okay. Sorry. So um, just to repeat what Phil just said, it's a rhetorical device wherein the speaker or writer brings up a subject by either denying it or denying that it should be brought up. Yeah. So, okay. you know, these are some examples that Trump used uh, of the paralipsis uh, rhetorical device, and you'll see exactly what he's talking about. So about Jeb Bush, I quote, I was going to say dummy. But I won't say it. I just won't say it. Okay. So uh, here's another one about ex CEO <laughs> HP Carla Carly Fiorina. Quote: I promised I would not say that she ran Hewlett Packard into the ground, that she laid off tens of thousands of people, and she got viciously fired. I said I will not say it, so I won't say it. Hmm. Okay, I know what you're getting at now. Yeah, I totally know this. Yeah. Uh, So here's another example, him uh, talking about Fox News host Megyn Kelly. I quote, I refuse to call Megyn Kelly a bimbo because that would not be politically correct. And he did this on Twitter. Um, So then he goes, instead, I will call her a lightweight reporter. Okay. All right. Uh, One last one here. Uh, This one, you know, hits home. Uh, He quotes, or I'll quote him. This is Trump saying this. (laughs) Uh, Unlike others, I never attack dopey john stewart for his phony last name would never do that oh that is hilarious because trump's last name is phony as well like the most uh, yeah they had to change it which is was common at the time anyway so the thing in trump's language that always stands out to me is the emotionality of it right um it kind of appeals to people's either preconceived notions and then it also reinforces them as well and Trump zeroes in on some little feature, some sort of perceived absurdity. And this is his perce- perceptions. And then just says that. And that's usually very simplistic. It's like, that guy's dumb. Uh, that yeah. person's fat. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, on the flip side, the best way to attack Trump is just make fun of his hand size. Uh, interestingly, Matt, uh, Reagan, uh, you know, another U.S. president, 
uh, also relied on this rhetorical device. Uh, and he, and it, you know, he famously replied to rumors that Democratic presidential nominee Michael Dukakis, uh, who refused to release medical records, was struggling with depression. Oh, and, wow. Okay. Yeah. So Reagan, uh, you know, responding to these rumors, Reagan said, look, I'm not going to pick on an invalid. <laughs> So then later, uh, Reagan claimed that he was only joking, but he applied uh, the same uh, rhetorical device, the paralipsis, um, that, you know, later Trump kind of applies as well, where you say, I'm not going to say that. Yeah. And it's um, uh, Michael Dukakis was um, like a, a paralipsis in and of himself. Like he yeah. famously uh, had that unfortunate one, the worst political picture in political history of him popping out of a tank with an oversized like military helmet on. Yeah. So he was picking up on this, no medical records, which reminds me the hell out of uh, Hillary Clinton, of course. And, um, and he also is um, picking on his like, smallness like that was what the image showed was he looked like a weak person so yeah exactly um reagan's is zeroing in on this that's yeah. fascinating yeah. that's a really good example man uh so i think those uh kind of get to your point about uh the visual yeah the visual well, right? yeah and so we should mention just quickly some plays as well another realm that uh you know is visual yeah absolutely and this might be a future episode actually some satirical plays that might actually uh, be i fascinating. i'm pretty sure it will be yeah. okay cool um so um, usually though, what I think is kind of interesting, how we, um, consume old plays and old theater is through the written format, right? Unless you go to like Bard on the Beach in Vancouver and go see some Shakespeare. Um, and I think within theater, there has to be some sort of diffusion of responsibility because usually the director is also the writer of the play. Um, so, um, I think with theater, they get um, all the many actors to sort of do the satire for them, and that diffuses the responsibility out there. Um, and I think you also see in theater the use, more prevalent use of pseudonyms as well. Interesting. So William Shakespeare, the obvious pseudonym. I can't remember who he's supposed to be. I, I feel like it's Francis Bacon, but I think that's wrong. Uh, ono Lit Class. Mm. Uh, the other podcast, or is yeah. it? Oh no, Lit Class. Oh no, Lit Class. Uh, they they just did an episode on this. Oh, okay, so. cool. So go listen to that so I don't just butcher what they yeah, probably did a better exactly. job of. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's some stuff I have on plays. You got anything on the theater? Uh, you know, theater works have always been the cornerstone uh, to how satire has been delivered. Uh, returning to one of the first points that I mentioned about Foucault and the, the art and the process of truth-telling mm. uh, would occur uh, in Greek times around uh, dramas, around plays, right? So being able to speak truth to power on the stage uh, was how they would do it. Now, that hasn't translated uh, to us that much. So the plays and the stuff that we have today that we consume are a little out of context. So we don't necessarily get all the minute satirical elements that are found in those depictions, right? So you have you kind of have to try to transport yourself uh, back to a time where the king would have been sitting there and, and, you know, the act, for example, of wearing pajamas on the stage was an act of satire. Whereas, you know, if you read that in the book form, that I kind of feel like you're missing out on it. Um, but I do want to note um, a closely related form to the stage. Uh, so it's I almost call them like a hybrid form where I think they're much easier to capture these are the kind of uh, Greek dramas that are written in poems. Uh, so the satires by Horace, for example, uh, or the satyricon uh, by Petronius mm. are two... Aptly named. <laughs> uh, aptly named. 
uh, two kind of examples of where it's written in a poem form, it's written in verse, uh, can be and have been acted out on stage, but they allow us to grasp the satirical elements in them because they're not, they don't, like they stood the test of time a little bit better. And this just popped into my head in terms of musicals because I'm a closet fan of musicals. No, so. we all love musicals. Um, so Tommy is a perfect example uh, from The Who. And I can, I'm can i racking my mind trying to remember the very Uh-oh. famous play that came out. It was an all-African-American cast, and they used hip-hop and rap in it. It was based on a U.S. president. Somebody just tweet out a, at Please, Phil or yeah, whatever. Send, send that um, it's, it's so famous, everyone will know. So let's just move on uh, well, from Well, so there. famous, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So um, do you have right. any other further thoughts on theater? I don't, let's but talk about let's magazines. move to magazine yeah, format. Sure. This is, I think, uh, one of the ones that you're interested in. Yeah, for sure. So Ch- Phil and I, our childhood like satirical magazine was Cracked and Mad. Um, we don't have to get into a debate over which was better. Obviously, no. it was Cracked. Mad. Um, <laughs> and then also what's um, really popular on the internet is The Onion and The Beaverton, which is the Canadian version of The Onion, which I think is actually funnier. Uh, yeah, just... The Onion has gone to shit recently okay. and beaver tin is so much over? better okay cool now um, there is one really good article yeah uh, i mentioned this and phil just almost lost it it's called uh feria like the hair dye product feria like i'm pretty sure 237 yeah and they relate it to french canadian women yeah and we'll just leave it there and yeah, i don't want to spoil it anything it's great yeah uh but these are recent examples of probably one of the most influential and knowable magazines in the satire genre right uh, that was punch uh oh magazine. right yeah yeah. And that, you know, it's two starters, Henry Mayhew and Ebenezer Landles. Just such old school name old there, school Ebenezer. Name. <laughs> uh, but, it. you know, that Punch magazine ran from 1841. It had its last issue in 2002. That's amazing. Huge run. I would, I would be fascinated to see what that 2002 issue was, if it was about like 9-11 and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, funnily, I've consumed a lot of the really old punch. So right, around yeah. like, you know, the late 40s, early 50s yeah. and 60s. And 1800s. then even like the late 1800 ones as well, right? Well, I'm yeah. talking about the 1800 ones. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, it, a lot of them are free and accessible. You can find copies of them somewhere. Right. Yeah. And the um, imagery is out there like crazy it's too. the pictures. The pictures yeah. are amazing. Yeah. And you were mentioning to me before we hit record on this that there's some sort of uh, Jonathan Swift connection to Punch. There Magazine. is. Yeah. I believe Punch, um, you know, famously depicted uh, the feeding of these fat children uh, kind of as pigs. Uh, to rich aristocrats who themselves are kind of like pigs. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a common theme, right? That, you know, rich bankers and stuff have pig heads and that kind of thing. Yeah, And if you Google Punch Magazine political cartoons, like Google image that, you will see the very distinct um, style of Punch Magazine. And that really influenced other political cartoons as well. Uh, Okay, so let's move into another medium carrying on this discussion, this overview of different mediums. Matt, let's go on to music. Uh, Set us up for this first uh, clip that we're going to get. So if you don't know uh, this, this is uh, Weird Al Yankovic, Jurassic Park. This is the first CD I ever owned. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I was typing this up, I remembered. Velociraptor. It's... Based off of uh, MacArthur Park, the famous one, and here it is. Dinosaurs are running wild. So that's Weird Al Yankovic. Um, he is clearly a parody artist. Um, he's walking irony. Um, 
There's a lot of satire in there as well. This is a straightforward one based on a movie, but a lot of his songs, like um, the song that we're going to start playing for you now, um, has really overt political messaging about American society. Yankovic, I picked him because he is uh, an example of intentional parody. And then another artist who I think represents um, intentional satire is Macklemore, and especially his song Thrift Shop. Yeah, I mean, like, um, if you think of Macklemore, you have to think of the uh, conscious rapper, right? Uh, you have to think of the guy who's out there doing the whole thing about what it means to be white and being a rapper. Yeah, so he's very self-aware. Um, so that's why we would say it's intentional. Um, but I wanted to actually get your thoughts on this. Um, it's a bit of a curveball from Matt, but what do you think about the Spice Girls? Uh, like, think, is that satire parody intentional, unintentional? What do you, what I do think you it's an unintentional parody. Like they took themselves pretty freaking seriously. They did. They did. And, um, they're very much manufactured. And I think yeah. that's where the silliness comes in where it's like, this is just ridiculous. Reminds me of S club seven, actually. <sighs> Yeah. Or the monkeys, actually, if you think about it. Could be the monkeys too, yeah. So the antithesis to this intentional or unintentional ridiculousness and parody has got to be, for me, Primus. Uh, they represent the antithesis to all this. Um, they are intentionally all over the map with their messages and their delivery, just like South Park. Um, when we come back, Phil and I are going to deep dive into South Park, but for now, we want you to listen to some Primus. I love me some South Park. Um, there's a quite well done documentary on South Park. So if you want a lot of the background about who um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker are and how the show is made every week, um, I'm pretty sure it's called Six Days to Deadline. Mm -hmm. um, something close to that, but just be like the South Park documentary. So I'm going to like 
because this is going to turn into a three hour long yeah, super we, fest, uh, let's not do we're, that we're already realizing that. So we're going to just sort of dip our toe into the waters here and uh, just, I'm going to give you some background on South Park, the show, and then we're going to, just going to go into some themes and then we're done. Uh, Matt, I must've been, uh, you know, nine or 10 years old when South Park came out. Oh, that's so sweet. It makes me feel so old. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> when <laughs> that was intended, when, I'm sure. <laughs> when did it come out? Um, so South Park debuted in 1997. Okay. I wasn't that far off. Right. Yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of people who don't like South Park think South Park is just like those early seasons, like very over the top, very gratuitous, very, um, yeah. like just over the top basically is the best way I can phrase it. Um, so it debuted in 97, but in 1998, they had um, this uh, great musical album that they released. It was called Chef Aid. It was based on one particular episode within the second season. Um, I'll spare you the details, but it's a good watch. Um, Chef, the character, is voiced by Isaac Hayes, the famous uh, musician from the 70s. Um, and Chef Aid is kind of a parody, of, is actually literally a parody of Live Aid. And, oh, right, yeah. And a lot of, therefore, a lot of really actual name brand Musicians appeared on this album. Uh, Joe Strummer, Rancid, Ozzy Osbourne, Ween, Primus, as we heard, Elton John, Meatloaf, Rick James, Rick James, and DMX, actually. DMX, yeah. <laughs> yeah, DMX was on there. So I remember listening to Chef Aid with my very good friend, Chris Krolik. I'm going to say your full name, buddy, because he gave us a five-star review. Thank you very oh, much for that, Oh, thank you buddy. for that, Yeah, Chris? that's um, when I talk about DC, that's Chris Krolik. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. He's also video. responsible for me loving The Sandlot. I'll give you a shout out on that one. I missed it in the top five baseball movies. But anyway, we would play Goldeneye on his N64 and listen to this album on repeat. So, I, Phil, I want you to cue up Cartman's I'm Sailing Away because it is my favorite track from the album. to cry <laughs> it has a it has that that comes and gets you right in the gut on every ship I would hear a lot out here wait for it this is the big it's a teaser okay man that's, that's good that, there's that another amazing drop yeah oh god no okay yeah a bit more blah <laughs> <laughs> Just playing the tempo the level on Goldeneye. He would always use what's his name? Odd Job. Yeah, Odd Job, the shortest character. And I would always use Jaws just because I liked him. I think of childhood friends. And the dream. Alright, we play and we play Goldeneye and we NHL 96 on Matt, this song can go on and on. I'm oh, going yeah, to start fading this out. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
I just, I can't, my <laughs> I can't really understand what he's telling us. Yeah, like sailing away, bro. Yeah, and Cartman's famous for that. He would, um, I feel like... I, oh, okay, the guitar's cool. just kicked in. Oh. But I'm, I, I gotta cut this. If you want the full song, check it out. It's on YouTube somewhere, I'm Amazing. sure. Amazing. Oh, all these are on YouTube. Um, and that's something interesting about South Park. Very early on, they made their shows widely available to their viewers. Um, even before there was YouTube file sharing, um, they never kind of put creative licensing restrictions on their stuff. Um, it was part of the deal they worked out with Comedy uh, Central early on. Um, in fact, the thing that got their deal was this um, short episode. Uh, it was a Christmas episode about uh, a snowman and Santa Claus, and that's on YouTube as well, and I really encourage everyone to, to look at that because you can see the foundations of South Park through that, and that's what got them discovered, so to speak. So South Park is a 22-minute long show, um, sitcom style. Um, there's like a happening, things sort of spiral out of control, and then there's all usually always a moral lesson at the end. And there's actually the famous line... Um, you know, Stan, or you know, Kyle, I learned something today. And right, then yeah. the moral message is usually like sound and then just whacked out. There's a funny little compilation on YouTube, if anyone can find it, um, where Kyle is just reading through all like different forms of philosophy. Um, so formerly they were standalone episodes, but by, I would say, the mid-2000s, you start seeing um, wider continual themes across the seasons. Um, they'd either span half a season or a full season. Within the last five years, because, and you can see this in the documentary I recommended, you can see their production schedule is only six days long. So in the last five years, they've honed things down so that they can stay on top of current events. So oh, that's okay. what makes South Park, in my mind, always relevant, even though the show has literally been on for 20 years. Right, yeah. Right. And um, so there were a number of movies. There was... Um, Bigger, Louder, and Uncut was their first one, and then Team America is the other one that I think is interesting. Um, I also think an interesting moment happened in South Park. I call it the Bush turn. Uh, it was um, after 9-11. So here, I got an example for you, sorry. Um, August 8, 2001, there is an episode called Tally, and it's a famous episode about this towel that likes to get high, and he's like, don't forget your towel! And it's okay. just, it's classic South Park ridiculous, not a lot of political messaging in there except for like maybe the just say no paradigm of the 80s or something but it's okay it's just sort of a but random this is summer episode. 2001 yeah so that is august 8th 2001 and then there is a short hiatus like many shows took after 9 11 right yeah and then their first episode back november 7th 2001 is called osama bin laden has farty pants and in this episode the boys raise money to send to children in afghanistan the children in afghanistan send a thank you present back the government suspects that there's anthrax in it, so the boys have to travel to Afghanistan and return the gift. Okay. And that's what I'm talking about, things spiral out of control. And then the moral at the end is that these people are not as different as we are. They're just like us. They're just little boys. So they didn't jump on the Islamophobia bandwagon necessarily, um, but the kind of message at the end was, uh, you know, let's not all be paranoid? Yeah, exactly. And another thing I really love about South Park is that... Um, they play around with their format and the tonality within each episode. So um, I was looking back at um, the famous um, first uh, movie, The Bigger, Louder, Uncut, and Blame Canada is the famous song from it. And I've been playing a lot of Broadway musicals and Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals specifically for Violet, my little daughter. And I thought 
the s music within this movie sounded just like an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical and just like Les Mis. So I was wondering if we could play Blame Canada. But now when I see him, it tells me to fuck myself. Well, play Canada! Play Canada! It seems that everything's gone wrong since Canada came along. Play Canada! So another thing I love about South Park is that they always talk about Canada. Right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so for those who don't know, the Canadian characters in South Park look like racial others. They, like, like their faces have like a... Um... The only way I could describe it is that their mouths go from one end to the other of their face. Yeah, like uh, horizontally. Dis like it's a just disjointed yeah. head. And then the top of the head just flaps around, right? And uh, Terrence and Philip are the famous Canadian TV show. And that harkens to things like SCTV, like these cable access TV shows that some Americans would watch. Um, but anyway, so um, the Obama presidency was another turn, I think, in... Um, South Park, and it also times up with the release of Team America World Police. America. America. Fuck yeah. So that just sort of gets me fired up a little bit. Yeah, um, well, so it's quite. It, it does something. Yeah, it does something to us. Um, so it's quite obvious that Ameri Team America World Police was about the war on terror, but more specifically, is about the ideology around the war on terror that was prevalent at the time. It was right. like ultra patriotism. It's like America, fuck yeah, right. But I also think um, it just sort of popped in my head. But it's also a parody of the '80s action flicks that these two guys oh, love okay. so yeah, much, yeah. right? So. Um, the crazy, like, where you, you can just mow down a whole bunch of terrorists with a machine gun and then you go get laid afterwards. It's, like, very, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme, basically. Right, it was kind of like the video game vision of what a war is. Okay, so this takes us up. Um, so the Obama presidency, I would argue that the political messaging evolved a little bit. It, it honestly became a little bit more intersectional. Like, there was more political commentary within each episode, and then the... Um, the fact that they span these um, ideas over entire seasons um, also added to the political complexity. That's just my opinion as a fan. Um, now, in the last two seasons, um, so Trump's presidency and, and the primaries was uh, the 2016 season, they, this is really interesting, they did not take Trump seriously, just like everybody else in the media. And so there is only like maybe two episodes on Donald Trump and Mr. Garrison, the teacher, um, becomes a Trump figure, and he starts a um, campaign to build a wall to Canada, right? And what turns oh, out, the yeah, Canadians right, right. don't want Americans up here, so we build a wall to keep uh, the Americans out, and the Americans get so pissed off, they're like, hey, what's going on over there? They want to find out, so they start climbing over the wall, which is this, like hilarious satire and parody going on there. Um, now, Mr. Garrison is like an interesting character, and we might talk about him later, but um, there is a uh, clip that I wanted to um, to play, and it sort of gets at, like, they're almost warning you a little bit. Even though they didn't take Trump seriously, they knew that if you don't take these characters seriously, they may turn out to be absolute demagogues. The 2015 presidential debates. Our next question is for you, Mrs. Clinton. 
Many voters believe that Syrian refugees should not be allowed into our country for security reasons. What do you think? Keeping our country safe has become more and more difficult, but I believe there are several things no, that we can... No, you shut the hell up! You've got a dumpy butt and seven chins. Syrian refugees are all terrorists! I know that our government needs to take a harder look at all... Yeah, well, it's pretty hard to look at you. We can all agree on that. So that was a very condensed history of South Park. Um, now we're going to get into some of the themes. Um, one of the major themes that continuously recurs in South Park is the theme of race. Um, I... Okay, so there is only one black character in South Park. Originally, it was Chef, and then Isaac Hayes actually passed away, so that was the end of the Chef character. And then Chef was replaced by this character called Token, okay? And he's the only black character in South Park. And now I'm going to make the argument that this is intentional on the uh, creator's part. They are making the argument that this represents the underrepresentation of African Americans in Hollywood at large. Oh, just the name and token. It, well, probably. yeah, obviously, yeah. And then also that they are the only um there's a there's a kind of funny episode where uh, a new black family moves into South Park, and then there's a little bit of a rivalry there, but that was it. And then he just remains as the only character. So we have a clip here that we uh will cue up for you and it's a poem that uh Cartman makes for Token to sort of I, I guess say sorry. It's called, I was not the bullet. I was not the bullet. I was not the gun. I was not the juror that set the shooter free. I was not the trigger. I was not the hate. Nor was I the judge. But still, you judge me? I was not the black family mourning for the death. Ooh, somebody shot our children. Lord, what we do now? And I was not the verdict. This isn't a poem. It doesn't even rhyme. It's going to rhyme, Token. Just hold on. I was not the shooter. I was not the gun. So, Token, you should be cool while we're all here at SKU. So, as I mentioned, uh, before Token, Chef was the only African-American or black character in South Park. Um, He was a very interesting character. He was the moral arbiter and the advice giver. He was wise and hypersexualized. Um, you can hear in this in the background. He was also, you know, stuck in the '70s for sure. But um, through his music and uh, being stuck in the '70s, he would give the boys advice. Now, I think um, he is very much a stereotype, and this is the point. The typical depictions of black men in Hollywood or some combination of this. Um, they are sort of wise, they're hypersexualized, advice givers at times, and sometimes even violent. And I think um, Chef is a very interesting example of this. Yeah, and it seems to me like in a lot of the stuff that South Park does, uh, that it's almost like gratuitously making fun of people. Uh, but I feel like in the case of Chef in particular, they give almost him the agency to speak on behalf of whatever depiction of blackhood and blackness that blackness, they're wanting yeah. to make, right? Yeah. So and especially Isaac Hayes, like he is somebody who has the authority to do that. Um, and I think it is really interesting that with the chef character, um, he, like Isaac Hayes gave this show legitimacy early on by signing him on and having his voice and his name in the credits. That gave South Park like, you know, street cred almost. And um, having this character, it was... You don't see characters like this on TV at that time. Right, yeah. And I think like it's not entirely different um, what they're doing uh, with this character, Chef. But I think it is really different than kind of what they do within their own show. 
Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's probably one of the more mainstream ways of critiquing stereotypes uh, that South Park employs. Yeah, and I never really thought of this, Phil, but it actually makes you think that they took the way that Chef critiqued society and uh, applied that to all their other characters after Chef um, passed away. Basically, oh, okay. After Isaac Hayes, I'm sorry, passed away. I think of him as Chef now. Right. Um, but yeah, again, this um, stereotypical depiction of a black man, either in Chef or Token, that is intentional, and I I strongly believe that it um, is a way of critiquing Hollywood's longstanding um, uh, avoidance of putting anyone of color into film. Uh, Matt, a show that started in 1997 uh, has to, and it did indeed, engage with questions of technologies, uh, questions around the internet, new things developing in new media, that kind of stuff. How did South Park do it? Um, so interestingly enough, at the beginning of the show and then all the way through, a lot of the, um, I guess, like the furniture and the, the things in people's houses and around in the neighborhood, it looked like it was sort of stuck in like 1992. Um, but that's just beside the point. They talk about technology quite literally. So there's the news media. There's a recurring um, scene of a funny reporter. I think his name is Tom. The news media started as a local broadcast and then it morphed into more of a CNN style. So I think that's interesting. They also mention other um, cartoons out in the um, technological milieu, the media milieu, uh, including one episode called The Simpsons Did It. And I think it's a, a parody. It paradizes and satirizes The Simpsons, but it also um, kind of relates to stuff I'm sure the creators hear on message boards like, hey, South Park, you got no new ideas. The Simpsons just did <laughs> right, it. Right, so yeah. it's actually referring to internet trolls. Oh, okay. That's what I think is the implied message. Interesting. Um, So directly about the internet, there's a my favorite episode. I tried to find clips, but it was so hard to find. It's it's based on Yelp reviews. Okay. Right. So Kyle, the Jewish character, his dad. um, uh, Oh, I forget his name. Forget it. Doesn't matter. Um, He becomes like a Yelp reviewer, and everyone in town becomes a Yelp reviewer. And then the restaurant sort of like rebel and kick all these Yelp reviewers out. And there's an awesome sort of scene. Um, at the end of that episode, and I won't spoil it. It's a it's a great musical number. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and then there's also the famous uh, two part uh, episodes, uh, the day the internet left. Right. right? Yeah. And um, funnily enough, like everybody has their own like need that they wanted the the, the th- their own thing they got from the internet. You know. So um, Stan, one of the other primary characters, his dad Randy, he's just after porn, right? And then the boys, they want to play video games and all okay. these sort of things. So everybody, life, they, so this, the message is that everybody's life has been impacted in so many nuanced ways with the internet that we almost don't even realize until it goes away. Like until right. we leave our phone at home, for example. So like, interestingly, they're actually employing uh, kind of the reverse type of rhetoric that we looked at that Donald Trump employs, where he says something and then says, I'm not going to talk about this thing. So he identifies the object that he wants to critique, uh, but then says, well, I'm not going to talk about it. Mm. What South Park is doing is they're fully identifying the object that they want to critique and then say, well, what happens if that object disappears? What happens if we remove that object, uh, create a little chaos? What would it look like? Yeah. And that living in the hypotheticals, that's something I honestly never thought of. Here you go. Never thought of that, Phil. Bing. Um, that is a really good point, and that's um, something that I think keeps South Park nice and fresh, right? And it's almost like uh, they live in the hypotheticals, right? What if this happened, then what did that happen? And to me, that is social science fiction, right? 
a form of it. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Or the speculative. Speculative fiction. That's a better way of putting it. So they talk about video games a lot. It's not really my bag, but there's a great two, again, two parter um about when the Xbox whatever and the PlayStation Four came out. Um and it's all actually based around uh, Game of Thrones, which was oh, also interesting. Like so there's three consumer technological fads intersecting there in this episode and um with in terms of sustaining irony throughout the entire episode this was a really it was like a masterpiece for them the jokes were just solid all the way through so i Mm. highly recommend the game of thrones two-parter um and this gets us to consumerism uh consumerism first it was cartman was the consumer uh consumerist right he was always yelling at his mom to buy him junk food and just buy him whatever the hell else um but it was never the things were not really related to real life in a way there was always like cheesy balls or something like this, right? They're, right, okay. They're not like real products. So you see in the later episodes, they actually talk about like PlayStation and Xbox and stuff like this. Um, but what I also find interesting about consumerism is that as the show progresses, the entire town becomes consumerist. Then we are all basically um, complicit in propping up this, I guess, capitalist system, right? Yeah, yeah. So there is the socioeconomic argument that's happening there. Now, Stan and Kyle... Um, Stan wears the blue outfit and Kyle wears the green outfit. Um, either one of them or both will play the contrarian role um, all the way through an episode. So they're usually like the person who's trying to like, why are these people going so crazy? Right Now, Kenny, which I think is really interesting, he is not able to partake in um, these consumer fads because his family is the poor family. Yeah, they live like on the bad side of town or the wrong side of town. On the wrong side of the tracks. Quite literally, you go over these railway tracks and the entire town turns from like nice to terrible. Right. Right. So I think Kenny is a very interesting character. They, many people will remember like, oh my God, you shot Kenny. Yeah, you killed Kenny. Um, Now, he actually died for a couple of seasons and they tried to put forward a couple of like different characters butters that's where he came from was when kenny's died okay um, and i love butters but they brought kenny back so in the more recent episodes that's our seasons that's why you see kenny now um, a little continuity problem but okay yeah and they almost like are going full force with kenny because if you look down south in america you see the divides the socioeconomic divides between the rich and the poor are becoming you know more cavernous or whatever uh, everywhere right? the uh the divide between the rich and the poor is yeah, becoming so you much s- more uh, visible. Yeah, and so you can see Matt and Trey putting Kenny forward as like an embodiment of um, some of the tensions around the economic situation in America right now. So I have a clip that uh, I'd love to play for you. It's a part of the Trump season, actually. The Trump season is actually about gentrification. It's all about Kenny's house and the fact There's that they're building restaurants and new developments all around energy it. that is so do so pound. From the independent merchants and unique cafes to the rustic charm of a mixed-income crowd. Where else can you let loose your wild side while still being a part of helping the local economy? And now, a chance to own a piece of this most exciting area of South Park. Announcing the lofts at Sodo Sopa. 2,000 square foot flats to put you right in the heart of it all. After a night out eating and shopping in Sodo Sopa, just take a few steps and you're home. With modern styling, these lofts are sleek, sexy, and oh so Sodo Sopa. And for those very privileged few, the most private and exclusive ownership opportunities here. Announcing the residences 
at the lofts at Sodom Sopa. Now you can have access to luxury refined while still just steps away from the action. These finely appointed residences all feature state-of-the-art finishes and balconies with views of historic Kenny's house. It's a place to laugh, it's a place to gather, a place to mingle with people of all economic classes. And now, it's a place to live. Sodo Sopa. Welcome home. Uh, Matt, I'm glad that we played that one. Um, Me too, man. You know, I think one of the, I'm going to call it story arcs that I enjoyed out of this sampling uh, that I did uh, was the gentrification sort of narrative. I thought that they really hit it kind of right on the nose, you know, how a whole town uh, kind of gets together to try to bring whole foods to town. It's over the top. It's satirical. It doesn't have any gratuitous, uh, you know, very in-your-face jokes. Yeah, no, uh, Or at least a couple of those episodes. Uh, And I thought that it had that sustained sort of um, irony throughout the whole thing, right? Yeah, for sure. And as sustained of irony that you're going to get with South Park, because one of the key elements of South Park is that gratuitous uh, dimension. And unless you're a fan who goes way back, who understands that the show has changed over time, um, those moments really jump out. That's just what I'll say there. But yes, I agree. The gentrification season, uh, to me, is their best work. The visuals, the way they parodied that commercial that we just heard. Um, I highly recommend people actually watching the video too, because like just the hipsters dancing around. It was just it, It's one perfect. of those hipster, classic yeah. hipster ads for lofts uh, that you see in downtown areas. Exactly. Like, uh, you know, the the focus of the lens is on a glass and yeah. then like the background where people are dancing are blurry and, you know, that and, kind of stuff. And remember, this place is, uh, this is set in Colorado and Colorado has seen a humongous economic boom after they legalized cannabis. So I think implied there again uh, is that local sort of, like, you know, it happens all across the country, but it's also happening in Colorado. So again, the people of South Park are, are um, adjusting They're to it. They're not immune to it, yeah. Exactly. So Kenny... And his family, his siblings, for example, barely have names. They just sort of sit there quietly um, in dirty and torn clothes. His dad wears a hat that actually says scotch on top of it. It's a trucker hat. Um, And his mom wears this like ratty green uh, t-shirt that says, I'm with stupid. And you always are looking at who it's pointing at. Um, But anyway, they, I mentioned that because they go beyond just saying Kenny's family is poor and they dig into like the dimensions of poverty and the ways that it uh, creates barriers for you. So I, I just wanted to sort of briefly mention that. Uh, anyway, Matt, so before we gotta, oh, what? before we move on, okay, because we got to close this up. Uh, we got to close this up. The, okay. What are some of the things you didn't hit on that, you, like on a okay. list sort of fashion that you do want to say that you've paid attention to or whatnot? Yeah, very rapid fashion because this is quite quite long. <laughs> um, so I think the evolution of various female characters is interesting. Um, they're all, every single character is a caricature, but the characters, um, change over time. Right. And they kind of grow in some ways. They don't get better in any way. Ageism is really interesting. The divide between the kids and the adults. Um, there's whole, um, themes around ideological and regionalism, um, international and domestic politics, as we heard with America, fuck yeah, in there. Um, Mr. Garrison's mental health, and he also transitions to a woman for a brief amount of time. So there's a lot of um, sexuality uh, themes going on. Um, body shaming with Cartman for being fat. His mom early on was considered a, a, a slut. You know, uh, she had a relationship with Chef. Um, but 
Yeah, so there's ableism as well. We didn't even talk about Jimmy and Timmy, my two favorite characters. Um, and then I also just want to really recommend people check out the PC Principle season. I, it might be 15, it might be 16, but just type that into Google. Um, I remember political correctness from the mid-90s, and it's very interesting that South Park picked up on this kind of before it kind of blew up and... Um, you know, language policing started taking off on the internet. So really recommend PC Principle. And my goodness, my friend, I am stopping there. Phil, okay. do you have any like loose ends um, or final thoughts you'd like to pass yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, I think one loose end um, <laughs> that I have is that, um, you know, you've kind of depicted South Park as being, um, you know, a satire that, you know, has a storyline and like to really understand it, like you have to watch from the beginning. Yeah, so like um, just for, like, so I'm the deep South Park fan and Phil is like maybe seen a few episodes, probably saw it in the early years. Um, so this was also an opportunity for me to like share m the love I have for South Park with Phil. So um, part of it was to actually get an outsider's perspective, like is South Park really good? Cause I just, I'm delusionally yeah. a fan now. Yeah. So like I sampled a couple episodes that yeah. you suggested, Matt. Um, Give us your honest also went, opinion. <laughs> also went back and looked at some of the early stuff. Um, well, first of all, I think, um, you know, the episodes, let's say they're about 25 minutes long. I would say that there's on average five minutes of good satire and irony. Uh, the rest, uh, you know, you know, 20 minutes uh, is gratuitous. Uh, I'm going to call it bullshit. Um, it's vulgar for no real humorous reason, except that if you find, uh, you know, calling a trans person a bunch of names in a row is funny, mm. I guess. Um, yeah, like they... Um with um like we mentioned with Monty Python actually sometimes the jokes go on too long and uh they do it and i also like as a disabled person they make fun of disabled people like fucking crazy on that show right like there's literally two characters um and they battle it out there's a famous episode called cripple fight right so like there is definitely um episodes in there that i just sort of switch off I'm like it's too much anything on Caitlyn Jenner right. yeah. is too much like yeah, they cut the a whole, clip short I... on where Caitlyn Jenner came in there just for that reason. Yeah, I think, so I think uh, a lot of the stuff around uh, transphobia, uh, yeah, they've sure. completely messed up. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you know, I was saying, I kind of gave them credit in the way in which they used Chef as a uh, persona to then critique stereotypes of the black community. I think that the way that they've used other forms or other ethnicities uh, as a form of stereotype fails. So I don't think mm -hmm. they get that right. Um, you know, in that episode that we watched around the gentrification, the whole thing about, you know, this Asian kind of restaurant oh, that City needs Walk. to, yeah, yeah it's, called, so, it's pronounced shitty walk. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the whole depiction of this, uh, Asian guy who ends up being a white guy, but this, yeah, they you just know, that, yeah. uh, the Asian guy who hires, uh, kids to work for him, yeah, I think like is slave horrible. child labor. Yeah. It wasn't They're funny. All Mexicans, yeah. Uh, it really wasn't funny. Uh, you had this situation where Kenny, the poor kid uh, has already been established as being poor uh, goes to work for this guy. That's right. Yeah. Uh, brings home a pay packet and gives it and buys like a doll for his sister. Yeah, that yeah. that was cute. That was nice. Uh, but the fact that he had to you know go and do the child labor under an Asian guy like that it was just over the top. It oh yeah, like as if Asian people are the only people well, who use child labor. Well, I mean, like, like that's uh, kind of it. Probably would have been uh, a better joke had Kenny gone and worked for the Whole Foods uh, in the bakery department and brought home a small pay packet uh, for, for his sister. Right. So I think they missed the, the mark on a lot of mm -hmm. it. I think a lot of it is gratuitous. And the last kind of point that I have is, 
Um, I think it is, um, you know, like I said, 5% of it is good satire, <laughs> good irony. Uh, the other, you know, 20 minutes of each episode is sexist, ableist, uh, misogynist, mm-hmm. uh, and racist. So, yeah. and like, I feel like, honestly, I'll just jump in because that's, that's a pretty solid rant. Man. I'll let you get it out there. Um, like I, for me, like, I think I got a bit of a darker humor in some ways, not darker than you, but like. I don't. Maybe I'm just like I laugh at some more fucked up shit. But I, I agree with you dark, a lot fucked of up humor. No, I agree with a lot of it because it's clumsy. I think is what you're getting at. Like, um, yeah, like the, and there's, there's I think there's a difference between smart dark humor mm. and slapstick, uh, poopy mouth kind of humor that yeah. doesn't work. And it's um, like um, I think they call it in comedy uh, like punching down, right? Like, and I well, I, I feel like they lay a punch, punch down if that joke is effective, right? And that's way back at the beginning i mentioned the humor and being effective for the the medium for the message right the humor has to be sound for the satire to work in my opinion but i hear what you're saying i hear what you're saying yeah my last little point sure. uh, so really the last thing yeah, we're going to yeah, stop this because sure. we're going on i'll let you have the here, last word bro uh is that it intentionally uh the creators intentionally have created something in which uh, they make you feel as if uh, they are smarter than you. They understand the jokes better than you oh, yeah. could as an audience member. Mm. Uh, and that it's that transparent in the way that the joke works uh, is a signal to me that they do not know how to make that joke work. See, I so, just feel like that's layers, man. Like that's layers because they're like the jokes are like so over the top and so blatant at times. But then there's also like unpacking the fact that there's only one character who is black in the in right. town. He's called Token. That's right. at least two layers, you know? Yeah, well, what that... But at other times... Yeah, but like, what that tells you know. me is that they're trying to tell you how smart they are. Uh, that doesn't tell me that they take you as a smart, reflexive audience member. That they need to put in your face that the character's name is Token, when it clearly is a Token person. Yeah. Symbols to me that they think you're dumb. Oh, and no. And I've they, never I, I think it's shows just a running joke almost, teach you, that, that show you that you're dumb. I've mm-hmm. never enjoyed comedy or movies that think that they have a dumb audience mm. uh that that might just be a personal preference but um my That's last word is i wouldn't have south taken park that, yeah uh south park uh the show that takes their audience is stupid oh funny because i feel like um so honestly man i'm gonna say the last word i feel like south park um is very dedicated to its audience and its audience has been there from the very start at the very early years and they've seen the show evolve and grow over time and on the surface, it's very gratuitous, but you have to watch the whole episodes and you have to see whole seasons, and um, it's still my favorite fucking show. All right, well, kind of like uh, this show. Yeah, those are uh, our honest opinions, man. Don't, you know, trust uh, one episode as being representative of anything that we do here on the show. You got to dig deep. You got to go and listen to all the archives. You got to listen to the feed. You know, you got to subscribe to our Twitter and to our Facebook and all that stuff. So why don't you tell them how they can do all those things, Philip? On Twitter, we are at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. On Facebook, we are at the SimPod. You can send Matt or I an email anytime at semiintellectual@gmail.com. Uh, our website, which includes the archives to the show, is thesim.podbean.com. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Player FM, iVox, Overcast, Podbean app, any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, and please, if you get a chance, leave us a review on our Facebook page at The SimPod. Uh, we have several patio sessions coming up for you this week. We have a bonus episode coming this week. and It is Band Book Week. And on at the end of the week, it is also... International 
podcasting day where we celebrate podcasts everywhere and matt and i have a special very special uh, kind of thing that we're going to do for that that we'll unveil later in the week and a veil then you can breathe long as you don't inhale lots of things there that you can drink but stay away from the kitchen sink throw out your breakfast garbage and i've got a hunch that the folks downstream will drink it for lunch so go to the city see the crazy people there like lambs to the slaughter they're drinking the water and breathing Welcome back, everyone, to the show. Uh, as we always do, we have some recommendations for you. Uh, now, in light of uh, Band Book Week, we decided to do things a little different for this uh, week's recommendations. We've picked uh, one book that has been banned or challenged uh, as homework, uh, as stuff to read, and two that we have read that we're recommending to you. So, Matt, uh, what's the book? Uh, let's start with the one that you've read uh, that you recommend that has been challenged or banned. For sure. So um, I got two uh, that I've read that have been challenged or bad. One is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Pretty sure I read yep. that in high school. Yep. And actually, probably another high school read was Of Mice and Men. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting I picked these two because I'm not quite sure why they got banned. So in uh, ahead of our uh, next episode, I'm going to revisit these two and sort of unpack why they were banned in yeah. some more specifics. So, yeah. um, and then the book for my homework assignment um, I actually have it on my bookshelf and I've been meaning to read it. Uh, Beloved, believe it or not, oh, by Toni yeah, Morrison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Mel, uh, my wife, has actually read it. So um, it'd be interesting to pound that out over the week and then get her thoughts and share them with y'all. Sweet. Cool. Uh, the two that I've read that I highly recommend, uh, the first one is The Kite Runner uh, by Khaled Hosseini. Yeah, uh, for sure. Great, great book. Uh, love it. I think I've read it three times now. Yeah, you're really enthusiastic when you mention yeah. that you're going to say this one. Yeah, really sure. enjoy that book. Yeah. Uh, the second one, we've talked about it on the show. It's a friend of the show, Brave New World uh, yeah. by Huxley. Yeah. Uh, recommend reading that one. Yeah. Aldous Huxley. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the one that I haven't read is Call of the Wild. Jack oh, Call London. of the Wild? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, got to, uh, yeah. I, I think we might have it downstairs oh, cool. uh, on our Tetchery bookshelf. Yeah. Uh, so I think I got to read that one. Um, that might be a thick one, bro. So if you need to like skim read that one, oh, uh, really, yeah. you don't need another homework assignment. <laughs> I think you're going to be quite busy this uh, week. This week is going to be n- insane. It's going to be nuts. It's yeah. going to be great uh, for you as listeners and for us as the yeah. hosts of this thing. Yeah, we're um, we're really excited about this uh, week or two that are coming up. Um, we feel like we're, we're doing some interesting stuff with promotion. Let's just put it at that. We'll and just so, leave it there. Yeah, so why don't you tell the good folks how they can reach So us. if you want to get first dibs and first knowledge of uh, what's coming up this week, you can check us out on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. Uh, you can check out our Facebook page at The SimPod. Uh, you can send us an email and we'll get back to you at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Our website with all the archives is thesim.podbean.com. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Player FM, Overcasts, Podbean app, any podcast of your choice. Basically, just Google semi-intellectual musings uh, and a bunch of pages will come up. Uh, we'd also appreciate if you left us a review on our Facebook page at The SimPod. Let us know how we're doing and uh, stay tuned. Make sure that you're subscribed to the RSS feed of the show because we have some patio sessions. We have some bonus material. Uh, you know what? We might even drop uh, the promo that we cut 
so at some point this week because yeah, I, I think it's it. I think it's great. Yeah, I think we did a good job, honestly. Uh, Matt, uh, we're nearing the two-hour mark on this episode God, again. Yeah, once again, and it's only going to be one episode, so bear with us. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you all soon. It's hard to be a player when at heart you've always had a hunch To bite the hand that feeds you is a scary way of doing much But still when we walk into this august and famous studio We'll be the very model of a modern network TV show But still when they walk into this august and famous studio They'll be the very model of a modern network TV show I am a Christian, tried and true, baptized at age 11 So unlike the liberals, gays and Jews, I'm going straight to heaven But if you feel you've been cheated and our sordid content lets you down We'll happily do the favor of an intellectual reach around We'll happily do the favor of an intellectual reach around We'll happily do the favor of an intellectual reach around We'll happily do the favor of a hundred dollar That wasn't the same thing we said Evangelicals are lining up to tag our toe And then the corporations will not hesitate to pull their dough But still when we walk into this august and famous studio We'll be the very model of a modern network TV show But still when we walk into this august and famous studio We'll be the very model of a modern network TV show